Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, the CMPU, in association with 898 Authentic Rock and Roll, proudly present the ultimate catalog collection. Hey, welcome back to the Ultimate Catalog Clash, folks. Uh, my name is Kevin Brown. I'm one of your co-hosts, and I'm joined, as I always will be, until the end of time, by my friend and uh, co-host, Corey Morissette, who I like to dub the hardest working man in podcasting. How's it going tonight, Corey? You know what? I'll take it. Scott Haskin is the sexiest uh, man in podcasting. <laughs> i got to figure out what your moniker is, uh, Kevin. Uh, maybe by episode four, I'll have that down. But <laughs> Yes, till the end of time. I am down, because uh, we were just chatting. You know, How many bands can we do this show? uh on and it, literally hundreds like we we could be doing this till we're old men uh, in the nursing home yeah like, hey, yes. we haven't we haven't covered the bgs yet motherfucker <laughs> we covered the bgs five years ago you idiot <laughs> <laughs> oh good lord okay well so this is the first episode proper of the ultimate catalog clash and what we're doing is we're going to go through the catalog of an artist we're going to listen to one side of an album per episode in sequence and then we're going to assign a score to each side of the album and come up with an eventual score for the album out of 100 between us. To add a wrinkle in, we're also going to pick an album from the catalogue each, and whoever or whoever's pick has the highest score then gets to choose the artist for the next season. Now, on the uh, prequel episode, or whatever we're going to call it, the trailer, should we call it the trailer, Corey, episode? Yeah, um, episode, we decided zero, that, Corey, episode zero. <laughs> Patient zero. Corey, Corey came up with a good point that Really, what we should do is discount the uh, the biggest album from that artist. So let's take, for example, if we were talking about Guns N' Roses, we would eliminate Appetite for Destruction, and we both had to pick a different album. And we've also promised to be very, very conscious about not trying to load our own album. So you can trust us because we are, you know, very trustworthy human beings. Um, the, the rankings or the categories that we're going to be ranking on are music, which is quite important in music. Lyrics, which I like, which not all people do. I was chatting to Randy about this the night. Corey doesn't always love lyrics. And then Randy production. Hates everything. Right. Randy, you know, contrary to popular, Randy doesn't hate everything. He just hates the profit song, and he's fucking wrong on that. He's anyway. absolutely wrong. Randy's just an angry, <laughs> angry old man. Uh, he's older than me. So, you know. He's, he's not going to listen to this show, so I, I can tell, I can say whatever I want. Well, just as a quick segue on that, you know, we're talking about my co-host on a different podcast, folks, the Seaside Pod Review, which is a Queen podcast with my best friend, Randy Woods, who has produced at least five times as more, five times more podcasts than he's ever listened to. He doesn't listen to podcasts, so he's no idea if it's good, if it's like plagiarizing anything, he just doesn't care, so he just talks to me, so. Yeah, so we decided to start with Genesis. Yeah. Um, and it's an artist, again, we, we talked about this last week, Corey, that I'm very familiar with Genesis, and I'm sort of familiar with all eras. You're more of a sort of Phil Collins era. So as I said to you, it's going to be fun to talk about the album that we're doing tonight. Or we're going to start with tonight because it really isn't 1980s, late 80s, pop hit Genesis. This is still very much in that sort of Pete gabriel sort of proggy area. Yeah. And uh, that's what I was afraid of uh, <laughs> because and I, I really listened to the early uh, Genesis albums at all. Uh, but I have watched their documentaries quite a few times. And whenever I, I said this last show, whenever I see Peter Gabriel come out wearing the fucking fox head and his wife's dress, <laughs> uh, and what the hell is this? And or Lamb lies down on Broadway when he's in brown face playing a Puerto Rican immigrant, and then he came out in like this squiggly, this bubbly uh, suit thing. Yeah, 
And he, was, he kept complaining, oh, I, I didn't know where to stick the mic because the mask got in the way. I'm like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> Just take it off then, Pete, you know? Exactly. There's a logistical solution to, a, to an easy problem. Guess what? American audiences don't give a shit. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we sort of said that we were going to prep, you know, the, the first episode in each series or the first band episode, the first proper episode, with a little bit of background on the band. So how much did you learn, if anything, about the origins of Genesis, Corey? Is there anything that sort of stood out to you? Well, in the origins, not so much, but more in, in, in terms of the split, uh, I, I think, is what I found really interesting because right. the, the, they were coming, kind of chugging along. You know, they did the first album, and what did Tony Banks say? Like 600 people. Like they sold 600 copies to friends and family. Like it really yep. bombed because record stores would – it was called From Genesis to Revelation. So record stores would put it in the religious section. Yep. Thinking it was a, And so it sold like a religious record. Uh, but, you know, they, they slowly started to gain traction around the U.K., and then kind of took it over to America. Very different audiences in America uh, than for, for prog rock, especially. But slowly started to get a foothold. And uh, when they were doing the lamb lines down on Broadway, uh, during that tour, uh, Peter Gabriel went went to the band and said, I'm done uh, after this tour. And yep. it's like, you know, they, they finally felt like they were going somewhere. And then the lead singer uh, takes off. So really interesting how that all kind of came about i know uh, peter had some issues with uh, his daughter unfortunately yeah um you know just you know not wanting to be in a band or on the road much anymore there's more important things in life uh when it, when it comes to family i think everybody can understand that but of course uh, and, and then how do you replace peter gabriel in genesis and you know uh that became a whole thing that i found was pretty compelling yeah it's funny too because genesis are a very like you said like north america with the prog side of genesis at least I think found it very difficult to find any foothold because they're a very, very English band and they're very English people. Like when you hear Tony Banks speak, he speaks very gently and all his syllables are very well enunciated. He speaks very clearly and you can understand everything that he says. He's very calm and he's very dedicated and sure about what he's saying. Like, Fucking hell, stick up your ass much, mate. So and they Mike were Mike Rutherford, you can't understand. <laughs> He's very bassy and talks very fast. But they're also, and so Gabriel, Pete Gabriel, and this, the, the people we're talking about now is Peter Gabriel, um, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford, a guy called Anthony Phillips, uh, who was the original, one of the original guitarists. They were public school boys. So they're all very, very, so, and this is the weird thing about England. Public school means private school. So they were all private school. This this Charterhouse School, which was original. So this school in England was founded in 1611 on the site of an old Carthusian monastery. So you know, and it only accepts 1800 or 800 students between 13 and 18, and they're whisked off and taught to wear blazers and talk like you know, fucking Hugh Grant and all that kind of stuff. But at this um, private school was another guy named Jonathan King. Now Jonathan King is a very sort of famous. He's a musician, but also mainly a record producer. And he would sort of take pop acts and rock acts and, and make them big. Now, he ended up sort of being disgraced because he was convicted of sexual abusing boys, as too many people from the 60s and 70s were. But he was one of those, the catalysts for getting Genesis, sort of the first deal and, and getting them known. So the first classic lineup of Genesis was Pete Gabriel, uh, Mike Rutherford, uh, Tony Banks, Steve Hackett, who you talked a little bit about there, uh, and not Phil Collins, right? So you've got the, this other drummer. So they start out, but I think the first the, the first lineup that everyone knows is with Gabriel Rutherford, Banks, Hackett, and Collins, and that's from Nursery Crime, which is the third album, up to the second classic lineup when Gabriel leaves and they go to Rutherford, Banks, Hackett, and Collins. And the first album for, from that lineup is the one we're doing is Trick of the Tale, right? So like you said, so Gabriel tells Genesis he's leaving on the Lamb Lies Down tour, and Lamb Lies Down on Broadway is this huge prog 
concept album, like The Who or The Wall, where it's this big idea, right? And it's Gabriel's written this like a play. When he really sort of intended it eventually to be a, a Broadway thing, he's put it in, there's no sort of subtlety in Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. But when he left the band, being Pete Gabriel, he didn't just sort of quietly shuffle off into his new career and go away, as he said, to take care of his family, which is basically why he left, like, as you alluded to. But he wrote this piece to the British media. So he wrote this long letter to the press. I'm going to read a little bit of it out to you about why he why he's had to leave. and Because it, it's really good. Because Peter Gabriel is a super sharp guy, very intelligent, very articulate. So he wrote, part of this is he said, the vehicle we had built as a co-op to serve our songwriting became our master and had cooped us up inside the success we had wanted. It affected the attitudes and the spirits of the whole band. The music had not dried up, and I still respect the other musicians, but our roles had set in hard. To get an idea through Genesis the Big meant shifting a lot more concrete than before. For any band, transferring the heart from idealistic enthusiasm to professionalism is a difficult operation. And he caps this by saying, I believe the use of sound and visual images can be developed to do much more than we have done, but on a large scale, it needs one clear and coherent direction, which our pseudo-democratic committee system could not provide. So what he was saying was his ideas were bigger than sort of this band, and he really just didn't want anyone else detracting from his, this vision that he had in his head that he wanted to do. And so, you know, Gabriel's solo career is full of those things where he, he'll he set the stage and the whole show will be this narrative that isn't what Genesis was ever about, right? So, I tell you, and uh, what I heard from that statement was, I don't get along with Tony Banks anymore. Because <laughs> when you're talking about the, the, the pseudo-democratic society, that's Tony Banks. Right. Like, like he ran the show and he wasn't in for like Peter Gabriel talked about, I had to smuggle the costumes in without yeah. Tony seeing and just yeah. come out stage wearing it. Cause he would have vetoed it and said, there's no hell, no way in hell you're coming out dressed like that. So uh, little, little shots of Tony, I, I think uh, in that yeah. very democratic statement, <laughs> but it, you know, all quickly resolved in, you know, so, the, and they didn't, as you would have read too. So they went through auditions for it. They actually put a, an ad in one of the, sort of the local trade magazines saying, um, looking for a singer for a Genesis like band. And so just people turn up and fuck me, it's Genesis, right? But they just couldn't find anyone who really quite fits, whether it was the tone or whether it was the style or whether it was the person. That's a difficult dynamic in a band. And so they sort of said, well, you know what we'll do? Let's go into the studio because what we need to do first and foremost is go and find out if we can still write songs without Pete. Because that's going to be make or break, right? If we don't have any musical ideas and we can't make songs, we can figure this thing out later, we can figure that out. So they go into the studio, they start laying down these tracks and say, okay, well, you know what? Phil can sing, because Phil Phil Collins had done backing vocals on tons of tracks and had sung lead on a, on a couple, like More Fool Me, most famously, from Selling England by the Pound. But so they go in and they say, well, let's just, we'll get Phil to do, you know, essentially place all the vocals. And it's like, oh, okay, well, that sounds pretty good. We've got this song called Squonk, which we're going to be talking about on this episode. Mm-hmm. That's different to anything else we've heard Phil sing. I don't know if he can manage it. But Phil says, well, you know what? Let me just, I'll give it a go. Now, Phil Collins' idea at the time was, well, we're going to continue, but let's just continue as a four-piece instrumental band. Right. Which is wild, right? If you think about how they'd gone that direction, what we would have lost. So Collins sings Squonk, and they're all like, oh, holy shit, actually, this guy sounds quite a bit like Pete Gabriel sometimes, and he can sing this. He's got that rasp in his voice at that high register. Let's do it. Which creates another problem, of course. Phil Collins is your drummer. When you go out live... Can you do? Can you sing and drum? Is it okay to do that? Do you need a front man? So they go go through this thing, and they've got Bill Bruford, who you know is is a drummer, who Phil Collins trusts. So they're like, okay, well that could work, or maybe Phil Collins can be the the live drummer, and we'll just get session vocalists, which just never works, right? Because it doesn't sound the same. So they land on, well, Phil will do it. 
And so it's this weird thing where you get this this nerd behind the kit and Dave Grohl talks about this lots, right? The drummer stepping out in front is like, who the fuck are you kidding, buddy? You're a drummer. <laughs> get back behind the kit where you belong. Stay in your lane, right? Yeah. But Phil Collins comes out and thankfully, you know, is able to do it more than do it and he's, he's he's every bit gabriel's equal in terms of vocal prowess and creativity in, in his performance so turns out it worked out quite well and considering he didn't want to do it at all like he didn't want to be That's the front cool. man like he, he said I'm, I'm showing all these guys like uh you know mick strickland and guys who are coming in how to sing these songs and yeah. and they, they they can't get it everybody wants to go back to phil but he's like i'm the drummer i don't want to give up my, you know the the drum seat back there i don't want to be the front man and he talked about his anxiety of what do i say between songs yeah peter gabriel's kind of this kind of he has this kind of charisma that that you know phil's like i'm just kind of more of an every guy that you know i just want to joke around and have fun yeah. completely different from peter gabriel he said i stressed more about what do i say between songs than i did about anything i was singing <laughs> well that is a real thing right like because you get up on stage and I've talked to my, my friend Randy about this because when it when you're the front man, you've got a band behind you when you're playing, so that's comfortable because really you just all you have to do is pretend you're in practice and you're playing the same songs you've played a thousand times. But that bit when the music starts and everyone's looking at you, that's when the fear sets in, and that's when you know because this famously what was his uh, the doors uh, Jim Morrison Jim Morrison just yeah. wouldn't face the crowd right like he'd just look back at his band he would look at the wall and wouldn't face the crowd because he was terrified. So that. Well anxiety of stepping out in front i totally understand where that comes from especially with genesis i know peter gabriel talked about it, it would take these guys 15 minutes to tune their 12 string guitars so <laughs> everyone's looking at the front man like entertain me now asshole yeah well, these yeah. guys are, are fucking around with their 12 strings <laughs> tell us a joke so, yeah <laughs> do a dance do something come out in your wife's dress put a fox head on your jesus you're not letting that go hey you're not letting the fox no, not... head go <laughs> oh my god i couldn't believe it <laughs> So did you notice when you're looking through too, Corey, when you when you go through the track listing on Trick of the Tail and you look at who's credited with the you know with songwriting credits, I'm curious if anything stood out for you there. Uh well mo mostly Tony Banks, uh, obviously. Um Hack had only got a couple or a few. Uh, that kind of surprised me. There's only oh, what uh two that were credited to the entire band, right? Dance on a volcano and Los Santos, I think are, yeah. are both the entire band, right? Uh, everything else is Banks, Rutherford, or Banks Collins. But uh I, I knew I, I, you know, from watching the documentaries, I knew that Tony was really kind of the driving force in the band, but yeah. yeah, he writes all the music. Like he does a lot of the lyrics, like even on the, on the hits, everyone's like, Oh, Tony must hate it. When you guys had hits, he's like, no, I love hits. They, they make you money yeah. and they're fun to play. Yeah. And, and he, he did a lot of them, right? Like, you know, that that's my section in invisible touch or, you know, throwing it all away. That was my idea. That, that, that kind of yeah. stuff that I, I found was really interesting, but yeah, I, I kind of thought uh, maybe a little more Steve Hackett because uh, how well regarded he is uh, mm -hmm. in music circles, right? As a guitar player and as a songwriter, he's had very successful, uh, depends how you determine success, I guess, uh, solo career uh, since leaving Genesis. But yeah. he's really only on, uh, you know, he's on the instrumental, he's on the first track, and then he did uh, what Entangled. And that's really all he worked on this album. Well, so there's a reason for that. Okay, so... Again, they go into the studio to figure out if they can write songs. But like, okay, right. well, we don't know without Pete, right? So one of the first things that happens, so Steve, at this point, by the way, Steve Hackett's off doing a solo record. Right. And so creatively, he's putting all his energy into that. And he's not keeping anything back for Genesis because Steve Hackett's way of writing would be, he'd go away and do his own thing. And he'd write a bunch of riffs or he'd put, come together, you know, put, a, put part of a song together or pieces, bits and pieces together. He would bring that to the band and, and sort of show them, okay, well, these are the changes. These are the chords. This is what I'm thinking. And then they would sort of build it out from there. But Hackett really wasn't much of a, let's just get in a room, start from scratch, start playing and see what happens. That just wasn't, wasn't the way he created. So the other three, you know, and this is where, you know, and then there were three and it goes on to the rest of the catalog. 
they actually became really adept at that where it's like, okay, we've got a dynamic where we can sit down, find a groove and start messing around and playing around it, know where the switches are a little bit more sort of organically and dynamically. And we can, we can write that way. That might be a way that we can write. So dancing a volcano and less on less lost endos comes from that. So those basically, when you, when you listen to those songs, that's a jam. Yeah. Who, the, who, the, who jams like that? Right. So those two are jams. Now, the song that Hackett contributed, basically, so the, the thing that he came in with was Entangled, but he only had the verse. And we're going to be talking about this one. But he had the other, so Tony Banks had a chorus that he didn't have anything to fit him. So that's why it's because they'd sort of formed and were working on the music to see if they could write. And Steve Hackett came into those sessions later. So he was sort of a little bit behind the process. So, you know, Dancing Volcano Los Endos, he's on there credited but he really came in. The three of them had figured out most of the parts there. Because, of course, Mike Rutherford's playing bass at this point because Steve Hackett's the guitarist. But Mike Rutherford plays guitar as well, yeah. as he would do later on, right? So you've got this situation where you've almost got now a full-time member of the band almost becoming a little bit outside this three that have developed this working relationship. So it's, a, it's an interesting sort of dynamic, and it obviously only lasted for a couple of albums, but it changed the way that they would end up writing music. I remember uh, Steve Hackett now saying, yeah, he wasn't sure... Uh, if Genesis were going to continue after Peter left. So yeah. he went right into his solo album. So uh, that makes a ton of sense. Uh, and the first song we're going to listen to here, we're just a little bit, uh, bits and pieces of, uh, is one that he's credited on. Uh, Dance on a Volcano, what do you say? Uh, should we uh, play a little bit of the beginning of Dance on a Volcano and kind of get into the first track here? Let's do it. All right. That's very Genesis sounding. <laughs> the other thing, if you ever try, as a, as a hobbyist drummer yourself, like me, Corey, mm -hmm. try counting it. It is a <laughs> fucking nightmare because it's 3-2, then 3-4, then 4-4, four, four, then 3-4 again, then 7-8, then 3-4, <laughs> then 7-8 for the rest of the song. Like, it's just, it, Genesis do this all the time, right? They piss around with form and meter and, and, and time signature. But just the intro of this song is them just saying, hey, what we can do still make it melodic by the way exactly uh we'll, we'll play a little bit more of the intro i wanted to get into the first verse because the verse yeah, first yeah. sounds uh very different If I'm in 1976 and I pick up this album and I put it on, I'm thinking my record's skipping. Like, is, is my needle dirty? Like, what the hell was that? It's all over the place. Here, but what a fucking opening line that is. Holy mother of God, you've got to go faster than that to get to the top. It's one of those things you're like, where is this going? This is going to be epic. Oh, ly lyrically is one of the standouts for me in this song. There's a line in here, and the lab is the lover that licks your boots away. Like, <laughs> my God. <laughs> That's well, poetry. 
And so this is a Mike Rutherford lyric, and you get this with Mike too. Like Tony and Mike, they do write differently. As you know, when we get to you know something like Madman Moon, which is a, a Tony Banks song, you're going to hear a very different sort of approach to lyric writing. But there is a similarity to some of this stuff. And I'll throw back again to someone we were talking about, Corey. Um, and maybe I'll leave this. You know what? I shall leave that to the end. I'm going to be talk, I was going to quote Quinn from And Volume okay. for All because he's got an idea, and I think that there's a, a, a direct line between heavy metal and prog rock. We'll get into that. So one of the parts that I uh, was looking at was if you skip, or if you got it skipped onto something you want to talk about? Oh, no, uh, it's your turn. You go ahead. 228. Okay. You go to 228-ish. And so it's that line on your left, on your right. So if you start it from there. On your left and on your right. Crosses are green, crosses are blue. So straight away, it's, it's totally changed the direction of the song, right? You've got mm-hmm. the intros, kind of a halftime, ballady, quite light. You get this minor key change into Holy Mother of God. And now we've got this big, bright explosion into this major key. So this is just Genesis being Genesis, right? Yeah, I, I really loved And going back, I was going back to 204. Uh, there's this nice little in- instrumental section, but it really builds... Uh, tension like you yeah. almost kind of feel as a listener like if things are getting tense something big was going to happen and it explodes into that like you said yeah so i thought that was pretty cool uh i i earmarked a, a part here because it reminded me of bto and uh we'll, we'll see if it reminds you of bto somehow i doubt it <laughs> you don't want to fall as well but the better start the dance do, do, do you want so they were stuttering on records uh, before okay. BTO. Did. <laughs> <laughs> what year is BTO? Like when they were, I think they were mid to late seventies, weren't they? They were. I, I wonder which came first, BTO or Trick of the Tail. Yeah, I don't know, and I'm sure that Genesis weren't the first doing it either, right? I didn't because I, I can't remember if it was you, but somebody I listened to was really bitching on BTO for having the stuttering uh, in "You Ain't Seen Nothing Yet," which would have been 1974. So Genesis okay. lifted it from BTO. <laughs> No, I, it's not that song specific. It's just BTO. Just I don't know. Randy Bachman's a genius. I get it. I totally get it. But there's nothing in that band that just not, Apolo- nothing gets me. Nothing gets me hardcore. <laughs> Apologies to Sean McGinnity and our friends from Manitoba. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you know, Burton Cummings lives in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan now. And he's a, he's is, an ordinary old fucker, and nobody likes him. Weird. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Did you have another spot here? Because I got one. If you don't, let's do yours next, then. Yeah. All right, uh, picked up uh, right around 410. Uh, everything kind of gets up tempo here and kind of cool sounding, I thought. So there, it just goes nuts, right? And then you have the the slow down, let the dance begin, and then they play a section you couldn't dance to if your life depended yeah. on it. Well, the cool thing about it is that's totally Gabriel. That's that's Phil Collins doing Peter Gabriel, like let the dance be, like that affected, yeah. very operatic theatrical thing. That's totally the cool thing about it is it's, again try to count this one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, two, three. It's just like what the fuck? <laughs> I don't know where to come in. I don't know where the one is. I've lost the one already, guys. <laughs> the, the fact they can keep it together, I, I think, yeah, proves crazy. they're worth as musicians, right? Because they're so good, they they can go off on like musical tangents like this, right? So you're talking about Mike Hackett, right? Where's Mike Hackett on this? And so. It Mike is Hackett? something. 
<laughs> Steve Hackett, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Losing my mind. Leave that in. I'll do, I'll do a Mariano. <laughs> Steve Hackett. So I think one of the reasons for that is, is Steve Hackett's guitar tone in this sort of period with Genesis was very trebly and quite, I, I don't know, the, like reedy is the way I describe it. So you don't, because you've got Tony Banks playing those synths as well in that upper register, sometimes you can lose that a little bit in the mix. I think that that might be where that's coming from a little bit. Oh, and that was the one thing watching the documentary. Uh, it was Mike Rutherford said, uh, you know, Steve Hackett, uh, he, the way he plays guitar sounds like other instruments. You, you think you're hearing the keyboard. And yeah. a lot of these songs where I put question mark, where's Steve Hackett? Could have been him playing guitar. I just didn't know it. Yeah, for sure. So that's what I love about that is you've got that doubling, right? So you've got the synth and the lead guitar doubling. But you can hear both really, really clearly. And that timing to get it that close, man, it's like the Eagles when they do the solo for Hotel California, right? When you've got Joe Walsh and, and uh, Glenn Frey playing. Fry, Frey, is it Frey or Fry? What do you Fry. say? Right. When, when they're both playing that um, solo, it's so precise. And you need the same thing here. That timing's because it's in this weird time signature and it's fast. It's easy to get wrong, and you know when you see him do it live, he's like, "Oh my god, these guys are just god level. It's crazy." Now there is a bit in that section that we got to just at the end that's a detraction for me, and it's that weird squelchy synth thing that Tony Banks has decided to. I was like, "Dude, I, I, you've lost me now. I don't know why you've put that in there." And, and it's one of those things that sometimes with early Genesis, the synths do make it sound a wee bit dated. Yeah, and uh, this section of the song lost me too. I was with it for a long way here, and then yeah, getting like like you said, the I don't know what the fuck Tony was going for there, but it, it didn't quite work for me. It kind of rebounds for me a little bit at the end, uh, but overall, um, I thought it was a pretty good introduction uh, to the album here, and I found it interesting. Uh, Genesis played this live 498 times, so mm -hmm. it was a it was a mainstay in the set from '76 all the way to '92. Uh, yeah, I, I imagine it being a really good uh, concert opener if you're coming out of, say, like the land medley or something, you know, kicking off the next section uh, yeah. with Dance on a Volcano, I thought was, was, you know, pretty good introduction. Well, and again, it's got that sort of thematically and lyrically, there's a sort of weird, almost sort of foreboding to it. We're not really quite sure what it's about, but you, it's a bit unsettling. Yeah. Again, like, Let the Dance Begin is, a, is quite a... It's almost got that like children of the corny or no, what's the, what's the wicker man, right? You okay. think well, you're getting this weird cult thing that are forcing people to, I don't know, they're going to dance or dance is a metaphor for something, but it's got a, there's a bit of an, always been a bit of an ominous thing to this. Right. And like, I think with that minor key section, mother of God, and through a crack in the mother earth blazing hot lava, all this kind of thing. It's very, it's quite violent imagery. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's got that kind of, it's got a bit of menace to it, which I like. It's kind of cool. But then you've got these big, these big breaks into the major key too. Very good. Uh, I'll start then. Dance on a Volcano, I gave a 7 out of 10 for music. I thought, again, I would have graded it higher, except for maybe that last minute uh, okay. that, that we kind of alluded to there. Uh, lyrically, I gave it 7.5. I thought I really enjoyed it lyrically. And production-wise, 3.5. Again, I docked a little bit because we, we've actually uh, kind of uh, woven a song structure into production. So it's yeah. not just how the track sounds or how it's put together. We're putting the actual song structure there, too. And as impressive as some of those uh, tempo changes are, sometimes they're unnecessary. I, I thought for, for kind of the makeup of the of the song. So I gave that a three and a half. So seven, seven and a half and three and a half is what I gave Dance on a Volcano. What did you think of? Well, so 
<laughs> it's funny because I talked about if if we go back and do Gabriel or Genesis, you're not going to like a lot of the production choices <laughs> on those early records because it's way what I'd actually written down that this song is almost like they thought. I wonder if we can pack Supper's Ready, the concepts and the, and the weirdness of Supper's Ready into six minutes. I think we can do it, and they did. So <laughs> Supper's Ready takes it to a different level over a longer time, but there's a lot going on in this song, and it's confusing and, and distracting, right? So I didn't actually break apart each song uh, for each category. I will do that for next week. Um, so I just basically sort of, because I, I, I did the, the side overall, but Dancing the Volcano for me is an 8 out of 10 because it's just... Again, it's one of those Genesis songs that's it's a deep cut mm-hmm. for the public, but for Genesis fans, you kind of want to hear this song if you go see them live, right? So it's an eight out of ten for me, for sure. Um, I would if I was going to just off the cuff do this. Music is eight. I gold seven lyrics because there's a couple of dead spots in it, and then production. I'm going to give it a four, dude, because I I just I love that stuff, right? Like I said, that proggy that proggy bit of my heart loves all the changes, so. And that's what I'm trying to reconcile. We're actually pretty close, uh, actually, on Dancing yeah. Volcano. So th- that was pretty good. Uh, tell us about track two. So Entangled, yeah. I mean, this is, if I remember rightly, this was one of the songs that they said, well, Phil can definitely do that. We know he's got that gear, so we can definitely get him to sing that one. And then maybe that'll be the one song on the album that he sings when we get this other vocalist and does the others. We don't know if he can do squonk. We don't know if he can do dance. We don't know if that's right. But so you'll you'll sort of you'll get that when you start listening to this song is that it's got a more I would use the word mellifluous, Corey, tone to it, where it's a bit more gentle, and it's a bit more sort of even, right? So I think it's got a, you know, it's again, it's we're gonna get into this a little bit later, but listen to the lyrics in this one, folks. Read the lyrics in this one. Yeah. Are you a fan of the Melaton? Because uh, it's quite heavy. Oh, love yeah. the Melaton, man. <laughs> All right, here we go. When you listen to it, because obviously this is the first time you listen to some of these songs, did you get any Scarborough Fair kind of yes. vibes from this? Right, big okay. time, big <laughs> time. Uh, if Britain were a song, right? <laughs> like yeah. like e- e- even the vocal delivery, even the lyrics, yeah, uh, even a little bit at, at the end of that verse there, uh, very much Scarborough Fair. Yeah, I can see Rolling Hills. I can see a little bit of mist coming over. You know, I can see some people being racist to someone over in the corner because that's that's England. That's the England I grew up in. You know. It's like, it's a song about herbs, right? Parsley, sage, rosemary, and thyme. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, I, I think it, it's I, got I just that... realized before we start, uh, I said Melaton, not Melatron. Melatron I, 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 I was thinking Peloton because I was at the gym <laughs> earlier. So it, it's pretty late here, folks, as we're recording this episode. So forgive me. I'll have to leave that in now because I just explained it. But we will talk about the Melatron later because there is a bit in this song that leans into it and throws, again, again, throws back to an earlier year of Genesis. So, why don't you, I mean, I don't, I, before we get to a specific point, Corey, why don't you skip it forward a little bit and let's just sort of see if we, if we go a minute and see how does it develop? Sure. Actually, yeah, I got a, a, a time code here. There we go. Uh, it, it kind of into the pre chorus and then into the chorus, which, uh, check that out.
So that's this is the piece that Tony Banks had. So Tony Banks had this chorus, and you've got that lovely, I think it's a minor, I think it's a minor, minor, minor sixth, maybe, drop, that he puts in there. But he had this chorus. He said he's had this for ages, kicking around, but he just couldn't find anything else to do with it. And it's in 3-4. So when Hackett comes in with this beautiful, you know, Parsley Sage, Rosemary and Time guitar lick, he's like, ah, I think I've got something I can glom onto this. I think it'll work. So that nice little, like you said, that pre-course, that build into it is necessary because you've got two different songs here, really, that they're gluing together, right? And I was really taken by the lyrics because uh, to me, this song seems to be uh, kind of an indictment on the uh, England's uh, healthcare system, <laughs> right? Uh, the, the chorus is, well, if we can help you, we will. You're looking tired and ill. As I count backwards, your eyes become heavier still. Seems like a hypnosis uh, thing. Sleep, won't you allow yourself fall? Nothing can hurt you at all. With your consent, I can experiment further still. It, and w when you get deeper to the song, it, it seems to be like uh, more an indictment on mental health care uh, in England at the time. See, I've always taken that as a sort of a, almost like a Machiavellian thing. It's almost like a word going to run human trials for well, mind control or some kind of mind altering drugs from that. So I've always had a really, I've, this song's always been very dark to me because mm -hmm. I've always said, I've never, I've never said, which is interesting. So I'll have to go back and listen through that lens now about sort of an indictment to the healthcare system or mental healthcare system. Because to me, it's always been sort of this otherworldly, well, we're going to come in and we're going to, you know, just, just sit down. It's okay. We'll take care of you. And by the way, you know, we're going to do some experiments on you. Is that okay? With your, with, all, with your consent, of course, you know. Like what magical the fuck is going music on here? Is, yeah, like magical music is playing. Voices can faintly be heard. Please leave this patient undisturbed. Yeah. It, like, what it are you doing to these kids? Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's quite dark, actually, yeah. But very haunting, too. Yeah. Well, and they, so if you skip ahead to 226, Corey. I had that. There's a music, right. So there's a musical motif that they bring in here that really adds to that sort of slightly unsettling, jarring kind of quality that the song has. This is where my higher production quality, I think, is going to be in here because I love that panning effect. We yeah. listen with headphones on, you get that nice right to left. And, and even just how, how they mix in the, the harmonies, I thought was really, really cool. When you also get that, it's those synth sweeps, right? Because they're, they're quite, it's a square edge synth. So you get a very sharp metallic kind of feel to it. And that's that piece to me that's always been sort of, you know, you've got this beautiful, gentle tone that the vocals take and you got the harmonies and it all sounds nice. But that's why I've always found this song a bit unsettling because that metallic thing, it undercuts it and it sort of it, it exposes this other intent almost that the that the narrator has that I'm telling you everything's okay, but actually the shit going on in the back. No, don't don't you know don't it's the magician thing. Don't look at the left hand, look at the right hand. Yeah. Don't just look at what I'm doing here, right? So it's that kind of thing. It's that rope a dope thing where it's like, oh wait a minute, is everything okay here? I don't know actually if it is. Yep, no, that's well said. Uh, I wanted to go to the last uh, chorus here because yeah. I, I really, really enjoyed the lyrics on this one here. So we're going to skip ahead to 
that you would think that's a Phil Collins line, right? Because it, it, it's kind of yeah. humorous, but thanks to our kindness and skill, you'll have no trouble until you catch your breath and the nurse will present you the bill. I yeah. thought that was a, a wonderful, uh, wonderful end here. Fucking Thatcher. Even though this predates <laughs> Thatcher. Yeah. yeah so that, again, it's that, it's almost got like a, an Orwellian feel to it yeah. if, if you know what i mean like because yeah. you know we're gonna we're gonna fuck with you and we're gonna run these experiments on you know on your kids because mesmerized children are playing meant to be seen but not heard so we're dealing with kids here and by the way you're gonna pay for it at the end yeah so yeah again very nice. it, it really kind of threw me into i don't think tony banks is a fan of the english uh, healthcare system at all but <laughs> Uh, I want to get into a negative here now. We're going to yeah. go all the way to 516, and we're kind of starting the coder or the, or the end of the song here. So... This is the piece. So I'm assuming this is, is that is that a Mellotron you don't like? I, I didn't like that. And, and it's it, it goes on too long and it's, it gets really repetitive. Okay. So this is where, because there's I think there's a piece in, in maybe in a few more bars here where you get a big sort of synth choral voice effect coming as well. And that to me, that's where it sort of really resolves that actually the song that sounded nice and where everything was okay, there's a sinister element to this. There's definitely something wrong here. Right, and so you get that kind of warbly. It's almost like he's, he's sort of, you know, we don't have the we don't have Pete Gabriel anymore, so no one can play flute. So I can play Mellotron, and that kind of can sound like a flute if I play it in a certain pitch. Then you get these voices coming in, and it gives you that weird sort of ethereal kind of, uh, I don't know, dude. Like yeah. you wouldn't want to be in that room at that time with all those shiny instruments and the Doctor experiments. And it's just, I think it just it rounds that off. So there's going to be a lot of times in Genesis where you think that's gone on too long. Yeah. Totally, because because it's it's prog rock, man. That's what prog rock is: self indulgent, and it's over the top, and it's meant to be. And it's Iron Maiden does it, and like it's a whole bunch of people who do that kind of stuff. So I totally get it. I'm willing to accept it, but I love it. <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, I like the song. Uh, yeah, I, I like how it started with just a nice little melody, and and then it progressively kind of got darker. I, I'm kind of cool with that and the mood and everything. It got on a little too long for me at the end. Yeah, Mellotron heavy at the end, a little too repetitive. Uh, uh, musically, I gave it a six. Uh, just because the end of the song didn't really work for me. Uh, lyrics, I gave it an eight. Uh, I thought uh, Phil was telling a story. Uh, yep. Whether you like that story or not, he's definitely painting a picture. And production, I gave it a solid four because I thought the the panning effect, the way they were mixing in the harmonies, uh, everything is mixed really nice. Song structure, I thought was pretty good. We didn't have those jarring tempo changes in this one uh, as much. It flowed a little nicer for me. So I gave it a solid four on that one. Yeah, so for me, it's one of those, it's a great second track. Like an opening track on an album is really important because you got to set the mood and you got to sort of you got to really do have to kind of grab people, right? Because you want to make people listen to the rest of this side of the record. Yeah. This is a good sort of study. It's, it's almost a palate cleanser this early on, right? Where you've got this different thing entirely now. I give it a seven out of ten overall because it's a song that I love listening to, but it's not a kind of a mixtape song. It's not something I'm going to go back and listen to in isolation. It's just an album right. track, but it's got that dreamlike densely packed sonic in that higher frequency and again it's it's a nice guitar part from Hackett, right it's got very it's very 70s genesis um if i was going to sort of give the scores on the on the on the categories yeah music i think i'm fairly close i think it's probably about a six there's not that much going on in it it's pretty simple lyrically yeah it's fucking weird and dark and upsetting and it's going to give me nightmare if that was a movie i wouldn't watch it 
<laughs> you know, so I'm going to give that an eight. And then production, yeah, I'm with you. I think, I think I'm a four as well, Corey. This is oh, this is go. going differently than I expected, so <laughs> that's okay. It's differently than I expected, too, especially when you started playing the album. But when you start listening to it kind of with, with a fresh perspective yeah, and, and you're kind of following it along, uh, you get some surprises. And maybe song three uh, was a surprise for me. It's a song called Squonk. Maybe Kevin tells what's a squonk. Well, we don't know. There are some, I mean, you can look online, but I think as with everything, a lot of that's done in, in retrospect, right? Or done sort of after the fight where this song is, it's coming out of the dark corner of someone's mind. And this 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 weird shadowy figure that you don't really know exactly what it is. Um, and we'll get into, maybe we'll get into this. I've got some more notes on this at the end, but it's, it's a very abstract lyric. Where it's not, it's not, it's not um, sort of prescriptively narrative. Where it's it's telling a very definite story and setting up certain characters, certain events, and everything. But it's giving you this sort of landscape to put plug your own ideas into. Um, it's a great word, squonk. Like who doesn't <laughs> want to listen to squonk? Give me a break. Come on, that's great. And that's it's what I call derivative. my. It's derivative. Oh, do you? Is your cat really squonk? Well, you look at him. I call him squonk and gomp. Which neither okay. of those things are words because he's just a fucking squonk. Look at him; he's an idiot. <laughs> I thought it was a derivative of the Saskatchewan word "skronk," uh, which means to fool around in the back seat uh, <laughs> of a car with your lady friend at the drive-in movie. But uh, yeah. yeah, I was looking it up, and like "squonk" apparently based on the uh, North American uh, mythical creature. When captured, it cries all the time. It dissolves in 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 a pool of tears. Yeah, and I thought that was kind of interesting. And lyrically, they even allude to that, right? Like he mm -hmm. captures a squonk in a bag, and as he's walking away, he pulls open the bag, and all he has is this uh, pool of the tears. bubbles and the yeah. yeah, the bubbles of tears. Yeah. So let's listen to a little bit of squonk. Great beginning. Like I love getting Mike in there with and like feeling like both both drummers yeah. on the call are like air drumming up. Yeah. yeah I just want to yeah. get in there and play that, right? And Collins is I mean, this is one thing we're gonna talk about. I know we're gonna talk about lots, Corey. Phil Collins's drums, in sharp contrast to someone like Lars Ulrich, always sound fucking great. Yeah. They're crisp, they're clear, and he's great drummer. So he's playing exactly what the song and it's you know, we talked um about pound cake because you covered that on the last van halen podcast right. what i love about that song is there's so much space in that song there's still a lot going on but there's lots and lots of space it's the same thing with this intro right you get that great drum beat that thunderous bass line which i think might be doubled i think it's probably mike rutherford playing bass and tony and banks tony. playing playing synth bass right yeah so, that's what i thought too yeah but then you've got this this nice guitar lick so it's very very clean yeah probably the, the sparsest thing we've heard yet on this album Oh, 100%. And uh, did it give you Zeppelin vibes? I know they, they said they were kind of going for a little Zeppelin. Like, obviously, yeah. when the levee breaks is the natural uh, comparison on the beginning yeah. there. And they said they to them, it was kind of like their cashmere tour, kind of this epic yeah. uh, type song. Their clam caravan, if you will, uh, for yeah. the final tap. So. <laughs> Very epic uh, in scope. We are, definitely, my, we are definitely covering the Spinal Tap. Oh, please. <laughs> my, my, my favorite story about Clam Caravan was it's actually supposed to be called Column Caravan, but it was a misprint <laughs> on the record sleeve. So they, <laughs> they, they just say it Clam Caravan. Oh, good Lord. God bless Spinal Tap. All right. Uh, I wanted to, to kind of get into the chorus here. Squawks. Yeah, mate. Let's shuttle ahead to 107 here. He's a star. 
So the band was saying, this is the song that convinced them Phil Collins could be the singer. And yeah. I, I think that verse yep. perfectly encapsulates that, doesn't it? When he gets it gets better later too, right, with his vocal, because yeah. they sense that thing of, okay, we know he can do the croony, you know, like a simpler stuff, but can you stretch and can you belt a little bit and put a bit of an edge on your voice while this song ends up proving that he can do? Because dynamically, this is a, for a singer, this is quite a tough song to sing. It's not simple. No, he's kind of all over the place in, the, in that chorus there. Uh, was there a, a timestamp you wanted to shuttle forward to? Well, four or six, but if there's something before that, you go ahead. No, actually, uh, I had four, four or five. So we we're, were very close. We're talking to the same. We're in simpatico way, buddy. I know, right? I think we just recognize cool stuff here. Let's let's give it a try. Two cool things about that for me. One, Bill Collins, I would say, along with Stuart Copeland and maybe, oh my God, his name has completely left my head, Rush. Oh, uh, Neil Peart. Neil Peart. They are the best drummers with cymbals. Mm -hmm. So those those open close hats that he's playing, that and then he got Banksy fucking ripping all over those those up i mean it's just it, this this bit is so cool like is this is phil collins and tony banks just having fun yeah and, and just riffing right that, that, that's the the break in the song that it needs because so far like i said it's been another song that's a bit quite heavy and and quite similar like the pacing is quite similar this is where it's well let's let's loose now and, and just jam a little bit so yeah uh this is a song they played 355 times live yeah uh not surprised that that they stopped in 84 though uh, which kind of surprised me. I thought, like, especially 07, they seem to be breaking out a lot of a lot of older yeah. stuff in 07, right? Like, why not break out Squad? For the same reason that Queen doesn't do Great King Rat and Van Halen doesn't necessarily always do on there because they got the catalog's so big by that point, right? And again, I think that once you, you know, again, we'll talk about Genesis, the self-titled album, Invisible Touch. We They've got big, big, big radio hits. And you get into that stage where it's the, th- it's the thing that Queen fans complain about with sort of the magic tours. Now you've got people who are not really Queen fans, they're Radio Gaga fans or they're Under Pressure fans. So they want to hear the singles. They want to hear the Greatest Hits album, essentially, right? And so you've got a lot of that with Genesis too, where they'll still do, you know, they'll do Home by the Sea part one and two. They'll still do Domino. They'll still do, you know, some of the longer 10-minute songs, but they're not that, they have to sacrifice this one, right? So that's a shame. Uh, should we just play a little bit more uh, closer to the end? And... Let's do it. You know, yeah, skip it. Because this, what I, the note that I had on this one too is what I like about this song more than anything else is the last two minutes build so brilliantly. It's like this, you can, you know when, when a storm's coming and you yeah. get that smell of copper in the air and then you get the wind and the leaves start rustling, you know it's coming and just everything just builds up and then all of a sudden thunder and you get the rain comes down. So that's what this song always is to me. A little bit of you can't hurry love in there. Well, and of course you you stopped it at the end at the at the outro after the build, but that so do you know that ding ka ding ka ding ka ding ding? Do you know what that's called? Do you know what that beat's called? What's you it called? That? It's called a clave beat. Okay, 
And I learned this from my friend Randy Woods. So it's a it's, a, it's like a Latin-y kind of Caribbean type of thing mm-hmm. with that bump, 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 jang, jang. You know, you've you've heard it in tons of songs. Like I said, you can't really love it. It's a modified clave. Yeah. But that's a that's a full clave beat, which coming after the rest of this song, like, wow, you're just showing off now that you know all these other different things that you can do. But one thing that kind of surprised me, uh, this song fades out. A, a nice kind of a long yeah. fade out, which you would think kind of the bigger heavier. You you don't expect like a big epic song to kind of fade out. You expect some sort of big uh, big uh, outro to it, but that, yeah. that kind of surprised me. It's also one of the things. Another thing that I like about I always liked about this song, and Genesis generally tend to do this quite a lot. Is the lyrics don't have a A B A B or A B B A, or they don't have a, a very set rhyming scheme. And the lyrics in this one. I mean, they barely rhyme at all, right? It's, like, it's more yeah. like a stream of consciousness consciousness thing. But there's a great verse in there, or I don't know if it's a verse or a chorus, but all in all, you are a very dying grace, placing trust upon a cruel world. You never had the things you thought you should have, and you'll not get them now. And all the while, in perfect time, your tears are falling on the ground. So that's where, to me, that's always been sort of that outside observer, whether that's supernatural or extraterrestrial. It's that kind of outside view of humanity saying... You're not doing a very good job of being people, and I don't think I can help you. Because you're always <laughs> left with that. So because it because the song, the the narrator of the song pulls away from the subject at that point, right? Yep. Until you're not getting them now on the while and you fall on the ground. So it's that kind of thing. Well, I've looked at this and I've tried in the forest and I've tried to do all these things for you, but you kind of be on hope at this point, people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then you, you get the tears uh, metaphorically in there to, to yeah. kind of uh, nail that point home. So uh, Squonk, uh, to me, was a, a highlight uh, of Side A. I, I really dug the song. Uh, musically, I gave it an eight. Uh, I, I thought the band was fantastic on this. Uh, lyrically, a seven and a half. Um, I didn't look too metaphorically into it when I was grading it. I took it a little more literally. Uh, yeah. But it, it was still very good lyrically, I thought. Um, absence of rhyming scheme is something that was a real theme for me. Uh, on this album uh, it, it shows up in this song a lot on side two actually as well yeah uh, sometimes it works for me sometimes it doesn't and a uh, production i gave it a solid four and a half 4.5 i thought it was uh, produced incredibly well song structure structured incredibly well i love the when the levy breaks uh, uh slash cashmere kind of aspect to it so uh yeah. squonk uh, I, I think is my highest graded uh, song on side one nice yeah it's an eight for me because again it's a song that it's weird because it's again there's not it's not a. It's not like dancing a volcano where you've got all these twists and turns and you've got all these different avenues they go down and then they get super genesisy. But it's a very well crafted song. You know, you, it's a song that you can hear that they spent a lot of time figuring out the parts and making sure that no one's overplaying and that the lyrics can shine here and the the you know the, the keyboard can shine there. Um, and again, Colin's kit just sounds fantastic on this song. It's so bright and sharp and it's it kind of sounds better than Bonham's to be perfectly honest with you, which I know is sacrilege, <laughs> but that's how I feel. I fucking love Phil Collins. It's one of those songs that isn't a big prog epic, but it has all those parts still. And it's more, it's, it's one of the more accessible songs on the, on the album, which is why it's not surprising really here that you, uh, that you latched onto it. Now, again, I would say, yeah, musically, I'd probably go a seven because there's highlights in it, but overall it's okay. Lyrically, is an eight, eight and a half if I was doing half points. And then, yeah, a four for a production because it's just a very well-constructed song. It's very, really very good. Yeah. Yep. Very, very good. Let's go to the last song on side A. Uh, this is a Tony Banks composition called Mad Man Moon.
Anytime you get Phil Collins <laughs> with just a piano, uh, you know, that, that that's kind of magic, you know, yeah. against all odds, uh, one of his better solo songs, uh, but it has very Genesis lyrics. Well, and, you know, again, I mean, it's it's Tony Banks playing the piano and it's, it's easy to forget sometimes that Tony Banks is a really great piano player because he usually plays synths. Like he's got like, you know, when you see his, his, his live rig, it's insane. Like he's, it's like, you know, the guy from um, Spinal Tap. He's got yeah. just keyboards <laughs> everywhere, right? You know, have a good time. All, all the, the time, time. <laughs> so it's that thing of like and that's with the parody right guys like banks but just when you strip that back you forget that he's just a brilliant brilliant and there's a couple of snippets that we're going to get to later on that show how good this guy is yes uh my main note on this is that this is tony banks song he really stands oh, out on this man one. alive yeah i'm, I'm just going to shuttle ahead to the the first yeah. chorus here okay Mad Mad Moon, which is what I always thought it was. I thought I thought I always thought it was Mad Mad Moon. I didn't know it was Man. Yeah, I thought it was Mad Mad Moon because Mad Man Moon. What the hell does that mean? <laughs> but well, this what is does Mad Mad Moon mean either? This well, is Genesis. And, it doesn't have to mean anything. <laughs> well, that's it. But it's still this is still you know it sounds initially that you know the, the opening sort of eight sixteen bars. You're thinking, well, this is you know against all odds, or it's you know whatever it's, it's it's a phil collins ballad yeah but this is might be one of the apart from dance on a volcano might be the proggiest song on the album because it takes a lot of different turns here you know we're, we're going to take a left turn at albuquerque very <laughs> hard left right yeah. with some really funky time signatures and tony banks doing some stuff that's actually you can't really count it you just have to know where it stops and starts and some huge, very expensive chords. We're not doing cowboy chords here with key changes all over the place. So when it gets later into the song, it totally deviates from this very gentle, very soothing intro. Mm -hmm. All right. You got a time you want to shuttle forward to? Let's go to, uh, yeah. So the first big, huge, massive left turn at Albuquerque, 238. That's what I'm talking about with the counts, right? It's all. I think it might be 15, 16. So he's he's, he's dropping out just before you just before you you're ready for it, mm -hmm. and he's changing that. And he's also doing that thing he does later on, which I'm going to talk about, where he goes from major to minor, but in the same key. So it's whatever it's whether it's D or E or whatever it is, but he's going from D major to D minor. So it's it, it just doesn't go exactly where you think it's going to go. 
yeah, it's uh, it's what you expect from Genesis. You know, this isn't like I know three chords. I'm gonna play between the three chords. <laughs> yeah. When you when you're this good musically, you can fuck around with all the time signatures and yeah. and everything else, and 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 make it work somehow. That that's what really surprised me about this record. So just skip forward. I don't know about like twenty seconds or something, because there's a bit here where so because looking into this, they never played this live, right? And it becomes fairly obvious why they couldn't play it live pretty quickly in this little section. So. That's just Tony Banks saying, watch me jerk off for the next two minutes. You can't play that live. You need eight hands. <laughs> like, I mean, that's just... Octo Banks. You need Octo Banks for that bit. Yeah. And I mean, incredible that's... musician, yeah. Yeah. And, and he, you know, rumor always had it too, that he, he sort of knew, he's one of those guys who could think those parts. He, he just knew what he was going to play before he sort of sat. Because I'm, you know, if I'm going to sit down and try and figure out a song, I have to just whack away at the keyboard and wait till something sounds good. Right, but Banks who's could like he could literally have written that and just put the sheet music down, given that to someone else, and it would have sounded, you know, basically like this. That's just how sharp he was as a as a, or as, as a musical mind. Pretty incredible. All right, I, I shuttle uh, forward to about four thirty-five here. This is the part where it kind of lost me a little bit. Uh, oh, really? I, yeah. I, oh, I, I'm man. Really not a fan of this verse. Okay. I'm the Sandman, and boy, I have news for you. They're going to throw you in jail, and you know you can't fail because sand is thicker than blood, and the prison is a sand. And oh, Jesus, I didn't know what the fuck he was going for lyrically here at all. Oh, but man, that's 7 8. And he, because again, he's doing that thing where if you listen to it, he's playing, I, I don't like, I should look it up, but he's playing in, again, let's say E. So he plays, but then he goes to E minor, and he goes to E minor, but he's keeping that same groove going. It's I don't know, man. I this is this oh. is this is when this song comes alive for me. So. Musically, it's great. Yeah, musically, it's great. Lyrically, it's stupid, and it, it, it's kind of the anti-domino, right? Because I I really love when we get into this section of a song like Domino. Lyrically, it, it's so cool uh, in this like section of the song. Just trying to find. Because there's one lyric that I'd actually written down. Yeah, stick on the blood. Da, 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 da. He also thought they just throw in there's a line there for a jail can give you a goal. Now, unless you're English and a bit of a language and grammar pedant, that doesn't mean anything. But because jail, the old the old English, the ancient English spelling of jail is G A O L, and of course goal you just have to switch the O and the A. So that's just that's you know there's just like eight languages. There's eight linguists at Oxford at the moment going. You know, that's, that's just a little joke for the linguist. But it does, what that does do, though, I think, the you know, maybe we'll kind of, we skip forward and we'll listen to a bit more, but the last sort of line of the last verse is, forever caught in desert lands, one has to learn to disbelieve the sea. So this whole bit here with the sand stuff, I think really is just setting up that last line. And I'm, okay. we'll get into that a little bit, because I think that's might be the best line in the whole album. But And what's the uh, muddy pitch in Newcastle referring to? 
Soccer. Yeah. Yeah. Newcastle is very wet. Very heavy pitch. <laughs> very, very, very well, we call a field a pitch. Or soccer yeah. field is a soccer pitch, right? So yeah. yeah. All right, I shuttle forward a little bit here. Let's see where we're yeah. And thoughts will fly higher till the earth brings them down. Forever caught in desert lands, one has to learn to this. So there's your line, Kev. Yeah, it sounded pretty cool. Yeah, it's so I have something to say about this, and I wrote it down, Corey, so I got it right. And I'm glad I did because I've had a couple of beers now. So, so again, forever caught in desert lands, one has to learn to disbelieve the sea. So it's maybe, a, I think it's about the idea that you can't keep dreaming about something that's never going to be a reality. Or you can, but there's really no sense in it, right? And that's what the whole song's about, really. It's having a dream or an ambition that was too big to capture um, without ever actually realizing it, which we've probably all done in life. So it's almost like the, you know, from, is it Greek or Roman mythology, Sisyphus pushing the ball up the hill, that was his punishment, yep. to be endlessly pushing and it always rolls back down. So that ball being represented maybe by Madman Moon. So that's that's my link back. That's my little hypothesis for the evening, which is probably spectacularly wrong, but I'm going to, I think I sound relatively intelligent when I invoke Sisyphus. So, you know. I thought you were smart. <laughs> I just sit here and goes, that sounds dumb. That sounds so stupid. Yeah. <laughs> You're, you're carrying this fucking show so far. <laughs> oh, God, no. <laughs> we should skip, though, too, with about, I don't know, like 20 seconds left, so not much farther, because I think the outro is, it's really cool on this song. Yes. And I made a note about this, so we'll just, we'll finish with that then, and maybe we'll, yeah. So you've got again it, it goes back it's a coda to the intro and when it starts initially like again if you're not into prog rock you're not into extended you know musical wankery you'd think oh god for really do you need this now you could have ended it there mm-hmm. but i love that trail off because it's short right it, it, it kind of teases you with we're going to go back into it but actually no this is just the end but i wanted to ask you one thing that i literally only just noticed you ever listened to a or ever, ever watched a, a tv show called the young and the restless uh, I I know the show, but I don't think I've ever seen it. No. That piano, that little that sort of broken um, uh, suspended minor chord. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh man, they totally fucking stole a Genesis chord. Like, <laughs> that, it was pretty similar. Yeah. I can't believe you just pulled that out of your ass just at the final second. Good job. <laughs> All right, I, I liked Mad Mad Moon. Uh, musically, I gave it an eight. Uh, Tony Banks kills it on this on this track. This is very Tony Banks heavy and. He's really the star of this one. Uh, lyrically a six, just because I didn't like the Sandman verse. Yeah. Uh, and production four, because it sounds really, really good. So uh, all in all, uh, geez, a pretty decent track from a pretty decent side. If we go, uh, I'll, I'll let you give your uh, scores for the final track. And then, yeah, we yeah. can give our, our final total uh, for side A. Yeah, you bet. So Mad Man Moon overall for me is a seven. It's, it's sort of a quintessential Genesis track. It's got that strange otherworldly lyric. It's a big idea. You know, it's not a super convoluted song, but they do quite a lot with not very much in the middle of it. Um, it's very proggy. Like I said, it's super, super proggy. So if I was going to break that down, I'd say, yeah, music's, I think probably yeah, a seven or an eight. It's not Genesis on full speed, but it's really cool. Lyrics, I, I really like the lyrics in this. So I'll give it a seven. And then production, yeah, I wouldn't really change anything necessarily about this song, so I'll go four. There you go. 
All right. So uh, side one for me, uh, when I averaged everything up, uh, music uh, out of the four songs was seven and a half, lyrics seven and a half, and production four, giving me a grand total of 19 points out of 25 for side A of A Trick of the Tail. Kevin Brown, what was your score? Right. I've said eight mostly for music, right? I mostly. Think, yeah. I think I'm pretty much every track, maybe. Yeah. So I'm going to be weird here, and I'm going to say nine overall for music, because I think that when you listen to side as a whole, the flow of it works so bloody well. It's sequenced beautifully. Um, and again, I could definitely see some of the struggle points for you, and there's some of the conflict points in you with this. It's like, all right, you know, you could get on get on with it now. Like, we just we need to just get on with the rest of the song now, <laughs> um, given I know what you listen to or whatever. But, um, you know, but I think that they proved with the music on this side, I don't know what the sequence that they wrote it in, but they proved they could do it without Gabriel, which was really important for the band, right? Yeah. Um, and that Gabriel was only one of the pillars that made Genesis the great band that they were. Um, Dance the Volcano comes out all guns blazing, you know, going to talk about side two tomorrow and it finishes really well. But I think the rest of the music on that side is, is eclectic and it's different. It's missing a bit of Steve Hackett. You're right. Going back and listening through the clips now, it's like, yeah, he's very back in the mix. Mm -hmm. um, lyrics, this is where I was going to invoke Quinn from our, from uh, uh, and volume for all, right? Because he said that one of the things he said about prog, uh, about metal, sorry, and I think prog is similar, is that it's not interested in the mundane or the ordinary. It's interested in the superlative. And so all the lyrical themes on this album are very big ideas. There's no man is upset with his wife, so he goes and buys a Ferrari. There's no, you know, there's no, my truck died and my dog died and I'm going to write a country song about it. There's none of that. There's just weird sort of ideas in it. So I love that. Um, and this was an idea that, I don't know if you ever listened to my chat with Ivan Anderson on the Tom Petty Project. There's this idea of, he said that, um, listen to a heart is a little song. And it wasn't demeaning when he said that. What he meant is it's not really... It's not really anything other than a very specific, this guy's trying to see my girlfriend. He doesn't appreciate her. There's a very straight line in that song, right? Where yes. all the songs on this side one are just complex. They're big, big, big ideas. Again, I'd written down the same thing I think you did with the dismissal of rhyming schemes here and there, that mysterious quality of the lyrics. Um, I had to give the lyrics an eight. Um, production, I don't always love Steve Hackett's guitar tone on this album. Um, right. And it's... The throwback to sort of early to mid seventies era Genesis, where that was a choice that they made, and Steve Hackett—that's how he played those those parts. So clearly, there was sort of a, a method to the madness. Just doesn't really land always for me. Mm -hmm. um, Tony Banks, some of the synths, like again on um, which which song was it on uh, Entangled? Maybe that weird sort of squeak squelchy yeah. bit at the end. I don't love that. It's a bit dated. Now, what I was going to say, though, is we should talk about, Corey, a little bit, maybe, just on this first episode. How are we evaluating production? Because if we evaluate it based on what production techniques and what standards were at the time, then I don't think this is anything out of the ordinary. It's pretty much where it should be. If we evaluate it now against what we listen to now, then, it's, then it is really dated. Or if we evaluate it on preference, then that's a bit more subjective. Now, my preference would be to do it on preference because we are it is an opinion podcast we are not experts we'll throw that out there now folks at the end we're not experts Corey's made this explicitly clear on the podcast and so have I That's um, right. we're just fans um so I think that probably a little bit of a combination of those things but I think that overall I think a three and a half is okay so I think after all that my final score would be 20 and a half is that right yeah 20.5 20 yeah yeah so we're not too far off I'm 19 you're 20 and a half so yeah Pretty good grade for Trick of the Tail so far, I would say, wouldn't you? Mate, it's a great album. 
Again, oh, we got side B coming up. Yeah. It's 50-150, right? Is Lead it? singer leaves, <laughs> and you got to prove you can still do it, and you got to convince the public, and you got to win over your fan base. I think they did a pretty good job of doing that. I don't know. I think side A of 5150 would be like 24 out of 25 <laughs> for me. So <laughs> would it be for me too. Would it be for me too? <laughs> Bad analogy, Brown. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, that's uh, side A of a trick of the tail. Uh, next time out, we're going to talk about side B. We got some interesting cuts on that one. I'm looking forward to it. What other cuts on that? We got robbery, assault, and battery. Yeah. Uh, which ripples. is the, the only co write that Phil gets on that album, I'm pretty sure. Right. Uh, ripples, which was released as a single in the US. So Trick of the Tail was the single that was released in the UK, and Ripples with I think Entangled as the B-side was yes. released as a single in the US, and neither of them charted anywhere, right. which I think up to this album, or this album before, the only single that Genesis ever had that charted was I Know What You Like, from Selling England by the Pound in 71 or 72, and that reached like, I don't know, like 17 or 18 in the UK. So not a, I mean, and clearly not a big single for, for this album, right? It's, you know, it's prog rock, man. It's prog rock. And then we finished, of course, with Los, Los Endos, which... Yeah, which even uh, general Genesis fans, if, if they knew anything about the 2007 reunion tour, know that that's, that, that was a big track. They, they played it a lot, actually, uh, on that tour, right? Yeah. Uh, live, they played it. It's actually their most played track. Did you know that, Los Endos? I certainly 661 did. times. Behind the drum solo, but that's not a song, so I don't think that counts. You exactly, know? Yep. yeah, yeah. All right, why don't we wrap this sucker up? Yeah. Well, yeah, that's the first episode. I mean, I hope you guys enjoyed this because we certainly did. <laughs> Anytime I get to sit online, and I've only ever met Corey over Zoom. I've met his wife now in person. That's right. The lovely Laura, but I've never met Corey. Um, so that's a bit weird. I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully that's okay with you, Corey. So you know what? We're going we're gonna to do this anyway because that's what we do. We do podcasts, and if people listen to them, great. I think you'll find a little bit of value. In. And you know what? Honestly, come talk to us online. Like I said, we've got social media set up. Yeah, come talk to us on social media, folks. We do have social media set up. Uh, we are at Ultimate Catalog Clash on Twitter and Facebook. Corey, if they're looking for other things that you do, where can they find you? Oh, geez. I, I do a, a couple other podcasts. One is called uh, And the Podcast Will Rock, where we're breaking down everything Van Halen. Uh, one's called Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited, where we're going through the entire Aerosmith discography, trying to compile the ultimate Aerosmith mixtapes. And the other is Backtracks Theme Music, where we're breaking down our favorite songs from our favorite movies. And if you just want to yell at me in general, you could find me at CD Morrison. <laughs> and Mr. Kevin Brown, you got a couple of other shows in your uh, uh, repertoire as well, don't you? I do. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at the Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project, if you like Tom Petty. If you don't like Tom Petty's music, seriously, do not listen to my show. It's a super geek out. You won't get anything from it. Um, if you want something that's just a little bit more chatty and, and conversational like this, you can check me out on Seaside Pod Review. And that is at Queen Seaside on Twitter and at Seaside Pod Review on Facebook. If you want to shout at me in general on Twitter at Kev Brown Canada, I think. I think that's right. <laughs> so, pretty sure. And, of course, and sometimes you can find me on Corey's other shows because I do get invited on sometimes and they are a lot of fun. So go listen to Corey. Don't listen to me. Go listen to Corey. I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> okay, good night, folks. We'll see you again next week. Bye.